This morning, we're, we're wrapping up what's been a 10-week series we've called Unlikely Heroes, uh, Ordinary People, Extraordinary God, and we've been looking in the Old Testament and looking at different characters and, 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 and discovering how God loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And when we began this series, uh, ten, anyone been here all 10 weeks? Are you serious? So, good for you. Need a hobby, but good for you. That's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, we began July 1st, 10 weeks ago. Um, and we, we, we had this idea of, of giving you an opportunity to submit some yearbook pictures of yourself, and we've been showing those week by week. And the reason we did that is, if you can remember back to high school, uh, when you graduated, you maybe had opportunity to predict who in your graduating class was going to accomplish what. And maybe you voted for different categories. And one of the fun things at any reunion time is to gather years later and to discover how people took unlikely paths and they accomplished unlikely things that you never, never would have predicted or expected. And so this morning we're going to take a look at our last uh, little batch of yearbook pictures and you can guess who you think these are and there's a few more than normal because we want to use everyone who, uh, who submitted pictures to us. So any idea who this lovely gal is? Betty Ann? Betty Ann. <laughs> Have you even aged? That's, uh, so that's Betty Ann's daughter. Ruth Youngstra, any ideas here? <laughs> Bi? Yeah, Bi. Might be a hint. That's Bill Matheson, had a bit more hair back then. Good looking young guy. <laughs> Speaking of not aging, yeah. <laughs> had a little bit more hair back then, though, I noticed. Yep. Uh, great, that there's Nick Matheson, Bill's son. Any idea? Hair's changed color a little bit. This is Molly Wonder. There you go. Why do you stand up? I, know, I don't know how you take your t- That's Molly right there. That's who that is. And not sure, only a couple more. Looks like a Hollywood shot or something there. Hey, any idea who this is? That's Pam Blunt. Remember those days, Rick? Last but not least, student body president. Any ideas? Any guesses? That's Peter Craker right there. I don't know, is Peter in the house this morning? Oh, there he is. Sporting the overalls back then and everything. That was great. Student body president, Peter Craker. You started a fad. You were the, you were the first, eh? Good for you. Some fads need to die. I'm not going to lie. That's just... <laughs> I'm sure it'll come back at some point. All right, hey, that was fun. Uh, The key truth that we've been revisiting and and hoping that you've maybe just committed to memory already if you've been here enough Sundays over this series is this. This This is our key truth through this whole series that God doesn't call 
the qualified, God qualifies the called. What that means is there's not one sort of person that God is looking to use. God can use absolutely everybody that he calls, and he calls us all. And those he calls, he qualifies, he empowers, he uses in some extraordinary ways. And so as we've been going over the series, uh, we've looked at 10 different characters, and as I've been reflecting back on these 10 different individuals, one thing that has struck me is how diverse they are. There isn't one profile of a sort of person that God uses. You can't say this is the sort of person God uses, and, and, and this isn't the sort of person that God uses. None of you can say, I'm not that sort of person. Because as we've gone through this series, we've seen that God uses all sorts of people. Men and women, we've looked at. Uh, we, we, we looked at how God used the disabled. Remember back to Ehud, a man who was crippled in his right hand, a disabled man, and God used his disability to bring victory to his people. God uses the disabled, as well as the able-bodied. God uses people of all different nationalities and ethnic groups. We looked at Israelites, we've looked at Canaanites. Last week we looked at Ruth, who was a foreigner. God uses all sorts of people from different groups. God uses the powerful, we've looked at King David. He uses the powerless, the guys at the very bottom of the totem pole, we looked at Gideon. God uses people that uh, have a shady past, we might say, that might be a little morally suspect. We looked at Rahab, the prostitute, and how God uses this woman to do something extraordinary. We began our series 10 weeks ago by looking at Abraham, a man already when God visits him is 75 years old, a senior citizen. God uses the old, and this morning we're going to find that God uses the young. You're never too young to be used by God. We're going to look at a group of teenagers this morning that God used to do an extraordinary thing. And it's an incredible story that many of you will know fairly well. It's a story that takes place around the year 580 BC before Christ, so that's about 2,600 years ago that this takes place. But uh, even though it's, it's long ago, a very different time and culture, I, I don't think it's gonna be hard for us to find how we fit in this story. I think this is our story too. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. We're gonna begin the story at the very uh, first verse of the book of Daniel, chapter one, verse one. It begins this way. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So in about the year 600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at this time may be the most powerful man on planet Earth, comes against this little nation, the nation of Judah, against its capital city. He besieges it until they just finally wave the white flag. And he takes their stuff, their most important stuff, the stuff out of their temple, and he brings it to Babylon. And not only did he take their stuff, he took their people. 
He took the majority of the people of Judah, the Israelites, and he brought them into Babylon to live. We call these people exiles. What's an exile? An exile is someone who is made to live in a place that's not their own. And so the majority of the people of Judah became exiles. They were transported to this very different place, Babylon, to live there. And so the story continues. Verse three. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach these young Israelites the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. So Nebuchadnezzar has his main guy, select out of these Israelites a few that he's gonna bring into his service and what does he wanna do with them? He wants to make Babylonians out of them, right? I want you to bring some and I want you to teach them our language. I want you to teach them our literature. In other words, I, 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 I want you to teach them our, our religion, our philosophy. I, wanted, I want you to make Babylonians out of these young Israelites. He wanted to feed them the Babylonian food. He even wanted to give them Babylonian names. Uh, You know these, if you know the story, you know these three Israelites by their Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now without look, don't look at your Bible. Can anybody tell me their actual names? If you can tell me they're, they're, they're given Israelite names. I will give you a Tim Hortons card. Can anybody tell me their three names? Anybody at all? Can you cheat? Doesn't seem Christian like to cheat. Good, I get to keep it for myself. Oh, John? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Did he cheat? Did he cheat? You got it. I'm not gonna lie, I don't know if there's anything on that card. I found it. And there could be five bucks, there could be 20 bucks, there could be nothing. So before you go through the drive-thru, you might just wanna double, double check. <laughs> Uh, Well done. Yeah, in fact, if you continue in the story, verse six, it says, among those who were chosen, the Israelites were some from Judah. Their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So so he's, he's... even changing their very names, and he's changing their names in an interesting way. Now, if you look at their, their, their real names, you'll notice that, like many Old Testament names, they ended in a certain way, 
right? Daniel Mishael. Now, when you see the L at the back of a name, like Ezekiel, Samuel, that word L is the Hebrew word for God, right? El, Elohim, that's the Hebrew word in your Bible when you read in the Old Testament, God, the true God, that's the word El, right? So, so, so the word for the true God is embedded right in their names, Daniel and Mishael, and it's the exact same with the others, Hananiah, Azariah, right? Nehemiah, there's so many names in the Old Testament that end in the same way, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and that word Yah at the end is short for the word Yahweh, right? which in your Old Testament is translated Lord. It was a title for the true God, Yahweh. And so we see that in all four of these guys, the name for the true God is actually embedded in their very name. And so it's no surprise that he wants to change their name. And so Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, which in the Babylonian language means Bel, which is one of their gods. Bel protects his life. And Abednego, in their language, means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. And you see what he's trying to do? He's trying to erase God from their lives. He's trying to replace all of their beliefs, all of their values with Babylonian ones. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to assimilate these guys completely into Babylonian culture and spirituality and everything else. He's assimilating them. And to do this, of course, he picks the very young because younger people are are more pliable. I mean, we never stop having the ability to change for good or for bad, but it's easier to change and shape people the younger they are. Right, I mean, I just, this was last week, we took uh, Britta to the orthodontist for her first consultation. So we're gonna have our ushers take up another offering at this time, and <laughs> woo-wee. Just gonna have to live with those teeth, Britta. I am sorry. But um, she had a little problem, or her, her jaw wasn't big enough for all the, all the adult teeth that are coming in, and, and so there's, there's crowding, and, and the orthodontist said, that's okay, we could do something about that when they're, when they're younger, it's a lot easier. They have this little contraption to put on the roof of their mouth, and, and, and it has a little screw, and you, you turn it a little bit each day, and it actually separates, it widens the jaw. Because you can do that when they're a kid, he said, because that, that, that bone, your jaw, the roof of your mouth, it doesn't fuse until they're adults into one bone. There comes a point where you can't do that, but now, when they're young, you can actually change the shape. You can conform it. Wow, that's pretty incredible, right? Easier to do when you're younger, more pliable and conformable, and so, so that's why he's doing this. He picks some of the bright ones, the young ones, to make Babylonians out of them. Um, you know, it's interesting. Peter, Peter, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, uh, he writes a letter we have in our New Testament. It's called First Peter. Now, when Paul writes his letters, he normally addresses his audience with words like uh, dear brothers and sisters or to the holy saints in such and such a place. But, but Peter opens his letter to, to the Christians in a bit of a different way. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this is how he opens his letter. To God's elect exiles. Now, that word elect is, is just a fancy way of saying chosen Okay, to God's chosen exiles. What does he call the Christians? Chosen exiles. When we respond to God's call, 
Peter means we become foreigners in the land. We become exiles. We become citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that has God's values, God's ways. We become ex- when, we, when we follow the call of Christ, we become exiles, he says, chosen exiles wherever we are. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, verse two. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I've just highlighted that first sentence. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, here's my first point. The world is continually working to conform you to its ways. That's what Peter says. That's what Paul says. That's what's happening back in the year 580 with these guys. The world is continually trying to conform you to its ways. Just as these three young guys are, are uh, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to assimilate them into Babylonian, Babylonian culture, uh, what, what Paul is saying is, is all the forces of the world are, are working to assimilate you so that your attitudes, your beliefs, your behaviors, your values, everything reflect the pattern, the ways of living and thinking and behaving of the world, kind of like the current of a river. It's all moving in the same direction so that whatever is in that river, unless it swims against that current, is all being pushed in the same direction, is being conformed. What is a pattern? What is a pattern? A pattern, we all know what a pattern is, right? A pattern is something that was there before you arrived. Before you showed up. There's some young people here this morning going to, uh, going to school, maybe going to high school, maybe going to, uh, to college or university um, this week. Young people, when you go to school this week, you're gonna step into a place where there's a pattern. You're gonna show up on day one and there's already gonna be a pattern waiting for you there. A pattern of thinking, a pattern of acting, a pattern of values. And if you're not aware, if you're not watchful, Paul says, you're just gonna fit into the pattern. You're, you're, you're gonna look at it and then you're gonna ask yourself, how do I fit into that? That's the same for all of us, not just for the young. All of us, when we go to our workplace, when we're in our circle with family or friends, there are patterns all around us. And if we do not see them, if we're not watchful, we just fit into, we just assimilate into the pattern, and so this is so key, Paul says. You need to know that the world is continually trying to conform you, to assimilate you to its ways, to its pattern. How do we respond to that? Now we don't remove ourselves from the world. Some of us, we had ancestors. That was their response to that. Well, we don't want to conform to the pattern of the world, so we'll just build our own communities and we just won't have anything to do with the world. We'll hide somewhere. We'll remove ourselves from the world. Now, the scriptures never call us, t- call us to that sort of response. We're not to remove ourselves from the world, but we're supposed to resolve to live in it rightly. Resolve to live in it 
rightly. In fact, Jeremiah, who was another exile that was taken from Judah into Babylon, uh, he has quite a lengthy book in the Old Testament. And it says this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses seven. God says to Jeremiah, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the guys we're talking about. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. You're exiles. You're different. Don't stop being different but seek the peace and the prosperity of the place where I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, God says, you too will prosper. So our response isn't to remove ourselves from the world, but it's to resolve to live in it rightly because you cannot help the world. You cannot lead the world towards God by becoming like the world, right? If the world is in you. So how did these teens respond? Well, we see that they resolved to do what was right in both the, the big things and in the little things. They would not conform. They would not conform. Despite Nebuchadnezzar's best efforts in the small things or in the big things. If you continue in verse eight, it says, but Daniel, who was kind of the spokesman for the group, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the, the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way, and I won't read the rest, it goes on to, to how he and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused, they resolved not to eat the food. Why? Well, they probably ate bacon. You know, who wouldn't eat bacon if you had the opportunity? But, but the food that they would have been commanded, offered to eat, would have been in violation, would have defiled them. It would have been a violation of, of the laws that their God had given them not to eat. And so they resolved that they would not defile themselves in this way. And they didn't. And then if you, uh, if you flip over to chapter three, it's where we get into the heart of the story. It continues with these three guys. It says in chapter three, verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and six cubits wide and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And so all of these people assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. So that included these guys. Then the herald uh, loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the word of the horn, flute, zither, that's a fun word to say. Everyone say on the count, zither, say it. Zither, that's just a fun word to say. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and you must worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
So there's some incentive here, just in case you're not inclined to do this. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of these instruments, we're told that all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They all fell down. People of all nations and languages. But we're told that uh, at, at that time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced these Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the music must fall down and worship this image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some, O king, some Jews whom you have sent, set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men, they were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar says to them, is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all, all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Hmm. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So here are these three guys, and they refuse to bow. Why do they refuse to bow? Well, they know the will of their God. They know his word. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any idol, any image. They know this, this contradicts the will of their God, their faith, and so they refuse to bow, and if you can just imagine the scene, we're told this happens on a plain. It's kind of like Woodstock. You know, this just big open field. Hordes of people. People from every corner of the known world, every culture, every religion, every language, everybody. They all get summoned to this place, and then the zither and these other Instruments, including the zither, they all sound, and we're told that everybody from every nation and every language bows down. And you can just imagine all these people standing, and you can just see the, the sea of people dropping to their knees and then putting their faces to the ground except for these three who just stood there in that sea. Can you imagine? Imagine how they would have stood out. <laughs> imagine how difficult that might have been. As everyone else drops, they stand and all these eyes are on them and they know what's at stake. Can you imagine the courage that would have required to stand alone? But in spite of the pressure, they didn't bow. These young people, 
didn't bow. Now, scholars think these guys, when they were called into Nebuchadnezzar's service, were 12 years old. Okay? So now they've been trained for three years, and then this happens. We're talking about teenage boys refusing to bow when everyone else does. You know, young people, you're gonna go to school this week and there's gonna be 500 other people at school. And most of those people are gonna bow. Are you gonna bow? For those of you who go to a workplace, you're gonna go and you, you've, you, you've got a number of colleagues and there's other staff and, and you're gonna find that most people will bow Will you bow? Where did their courage come from? Their courage came from the fact that, I I think at least three things, that first of all, their courage came from their unwavering belief in God. The reality of their God. It came from their confidence that that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. Their belief and conviction and confidence in that. And thirdly, their courage comes from their faith in the power of God to deliver them from evil, even the hands of the most powerful man on planet Earth. Their faith in the power of God to deliver them from evil. And so everyone else bowed and they stood. They would not bend. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Chapter three, verse 19, it says, Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, and he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, why does he go into their clothing? What he's saying is these guys are highly flammable, right? If anyone's gonna catch fire, it's gonna be these guys. Look how much clothing they're wearing, right? So, so they're wearing all their garb, they were bound and they were thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was made so hot uh, that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. So essentially it was like a big fire pit. A big fire pit that had some kind of ramps into it. And it was so hot that those that threw, that brought them there to push them in were overcome by the heat. That's how hot that fire was. So they get thrown into this big fire pit. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors, hey, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? I'm right, like, right? They're worth just three, right? And they replied, certainly your master, just three. And he said, well, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Pretty incredible scene. Um, What happened? You know what happened? God showed up. I mean, we're not exactly sure who that fourth person was in, in that fire, but, 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 but that fourth person in there, maybe it's an angel sent by God. Maybe it's even Jesus Christ himself, pre-Bethlehem. We don't know. Either way, this is, this is one that has come from God to stand with them, to protect them in this fire. God showed up. And I think if there's a lesson for us from this story that I want us to take home today, it's this. God chooses to show up when God's people resolve to stand up. When does God show up? When does God make himself known? I mean, he can do it whenever he wants. He can show up whenever he wants. God chooses to show up when God's people resolve to stand up. You know, I believe God is, is, is looking to make himself known to our world, to make himself known to our neighbors and our community and our coworkers and our classmates. God wants to be known. It's because of the courage of those three teenagers. 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 Right? I know you ask, are they good for anything? Right, Annika? I'm kidding. My, my oldest is almost a teenager. I cannot believe it. He uses the courage of three teenagers to bring a visitation in that place. Hey, and we know that God doesn't need just three. God can use one person standing up in the crowd. I mean, you go, you go on in the book of Daniel and what do you find? You find another story of Daniel, one standing firm, resolved not to bow. And maybe you know how that goes with the pit and the lions and all of that. God can use one person who stands up. You know, when, when you stand up, you may be outnumbered, but you'll never be outpowered King Nebuch- it doesn't matter who it is. When you stand up, you may be out, you'll probably be outnumbered, but you will never ever be outpowered. Because God is with you. What was the result of this? This great visitation of God, this miracle. It says in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants they trusted in him and, he defi- and they defied the king's command and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. That's kind of harsh. No, God didn't tell him, like this is cut people up. That, that, that was the response of a pagan to what he had witnessed. He said, this God is real. This is God. This God needs to be praised 
and honored. Isn't that incredible? Three teenagers stand up and the king praises the one true God. And I'm sure they never imagined in a million years that was going to be the outcome of standing tall. You never know how God might use your faithfulness to influence others around you toward him. God chooses to show up when God's people resolve to stand up. I I remember back to when I was uh, a college student. And I worked three summers at a road construction company in Medicine Hat, Alberta. And that was hard work. And I I made a vow never to work hard after that. And to this day, I have kept my vow. I can say that honestly before God. I have fulfilled my vow. Anyway, it was, it was really hard work. And, and my, my official title was grunt. Okay? So the, the bottom of the totem pole, the guy that operates the shovel, right, that does what everybody else tells him to do, And I was working in a company of 70 other men. And um, it became pretty apparent pretty quick I was different. You know, if you stand up, right, it's not going to take long before people realize there's, there's something different. I tried to be faithful, and God knows that many times I have bowed when I should have stood. But I resolved in these summers to try to represent God, be faithful. And so working with these 70 other guys and under these conditions as the grunt, I tried to be faithful. And, you know, there was lots of behaviors and attitudes represented there, lots of things that I could not take part in. And, and um, Stacks of porn magazines in the trucks, the lunchroom, pictures, conversations and joking and different things that became quite clear as I stood that I was different. And, and that led to, and if you've ever been in that position, and many of you have, it leads to some ridicule. Some of it's maybe even lighthearted. Some of it was kind of just lighthearted ribbing and, and some of it not. It leads some, some ridicule, some jeering, some mocking, some feeling like you're kind of a bit of an outsider. And so for three summers, I was in these conditions. Um, but, but I worked very often with a guy. He happened to be the, the boss's son. And, and we often would have to drive to job sites. And, and occasionally it was just him and I in the truck. And you know what I found was pretty cool? When you have 70 people together, they all act rah-rah. But you get one guy in a truck, and things change. And so lots of just great conversations, the questions this guy had, the, the, the personal struggles that he shared that he wouldn't have shared in that other setting. And over time, we had this, this good interaction and built this relationship. And anyway, I think it was the, the, the third summer there, he was, he was getting married and so one day we're driving in the truck, I'm the grunt to the job site, and he turns to me and he says, Rusty, would you marry me? <laughs> and I said, no, no, I don't. Oh, I get what you mean. No, I, I um. <laughs> he said, I, I don't know anybody else to, to, you know, like he didn't know another Christian. 
He said, I don't know who else to ask to do this. Would you, like, officiate my wedding? <laughs> I thought, Phew. here I was, a 20-year-old. And um, anyway, what are you going to say? God shows up. You've got to go with it. So, yeah, I'll do that. Of course, my dad is a pastor, so I went home and I said, Dad, you've got to help me here. And, and so my dad and I, we're going we're to tag team this. I was going to do some of the easier parts, and my dad was going to do some of the harder parts. And then the day before the wedding, my dad had a heart attack. Thanks a lot, Dad. You know, I'm like, thanks a lot for just kind of leaving me in the lurch. <sighs> and so I was kind of panicked, and it was all on me, and I'd never done anything like this before. So anyway, the day came, and there I was, not dressed in my ratty old dirty jeans, I was up there in some nicer clothes, all 70 guys and their families of the company in the church. <laughs> and here I am, the grunt, sharing the gospel, love of God with everybody. I mean, I think back then, I think this is true. God chooses to show up when God's people resolve to stand up. You know, I, I think that's what, kind of bringing this to a close here, I think Peter, who, who, who referred to us as God's chosen exiles in the world, I think this is exactly what he's saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. I think I have it here on the screen. When he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, there's that, there's that word again, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans, amongst the people of the world, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What, are you say- what is he saying? He's saying, you're an exile. Don't assimilate. Be faithful, stand up. And he says, when you stand up, people are gonna accuse you of doing wrong. They're gonna call your goodness evil. He said, that's okay. That's okay. Because he says, a day's gonna come, maybe when God visits. When God shows up, And on that day, all of your standing up, all of your goodness that they called wrongdoing will now lead them to glorify God. I think he's saying the same thing. God chooses to show up when God's people resolve to stand up. And there's no... There's no lower age limit to who God chooses to use. There ain't. Here we have teenagers. There's no lower limit of the number of people God requires to stand. Even if it's just one, God will use just one. Now, these three guys, they they fully expected, they believed that God could deliver them from this situation. They didn't know how he was gonna do it, but they believed in it. But, but going back to their comments to the king, they said, but even if God does not deliver them, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not bow down. Even if God does not. They were willing, they were willing to pay the ultimate price. And you know, 
uh, for us now, we have the advantage of knowing Jesus Christ, having the gospel. We have the advantage of knowing that Jesus has paid the ultimate price for us. He laid down his life so that we might be delivered from our sin, we might be delivered from death eternally. So that even if God doesn't deliver you from this flame or from that flame or spare you from that trial, we know because of Jesus Christ that we have been delivered from evil eternally. And it's that that gives us the ability to stand. Because he is with us. He will bring us through. God can use the unlikeliest of people. Use three, use teenagers, he can use one. He can use you, and he wants to use you. If you resolve to stand, wherever it is you need to stand. And so as we take this home, um, just a few questions for you to take home with you and uh, maybe have some conversation around the dinner table today. Ponder about this, pray about this, but the first question for you is this. What are the patterns around you that, that should say the world is working to conform you to? What are the patterns around you that the world is working to conform you to? What are the, if, you're, if you're in the school, what are the patterns in your school? If you're in the workplace, what are the, the patterns in your workplace? If, if in your family, your circle of friends, what are, what are the patterns that are out there that all work to conform you to the ways, the values of the world? Because if you're not looking for the pattern, you're just gonna repeat it. You're just gonna fit into it. What are the patterns around you that the world is working to conform you to? And then ask yourself this, is there a stand that you need to take in the face of those patterns? Is there a stand that you need to take? You know, not being disrespectful, not being arrogant, not being judgmental or condemning. I mean, these guys, they were very respectful of the king. Your majesty, I'm sorry, your majesty, but I just cannot bow. Is there a stand that you need to take? What, what would it look like for you to resolve to honor God and to stand wherever it is that you are? Wherever you live as an exile. When you do, when you stand, know this, you are creating an opportunity for God to show up and to do extraordinary things and to lead other people to himself. So I, I just invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and I just want to lead you through a, a time of prayer here before we bring our time to a close. And the first thing I invite you to do is just to pray and to thank God that he has called you to himself and brought you into his kingdom. If you've put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, just, just take a moment and thank God that you belong to him, you're in his kingdom, that you have been delivered eternally.
Take a moment to thank him. Then just take another moment and and say to God, God, um, I don't want to be conformed to the patterns of this world. I want to stand for you. Lord, is there some way in which I need to stand? Any way in which I've been conformed? Lord, show me that. Take an opportunity to ask God. Lord God, I thank you that in your love for us, you have done it all. Through your life and your death and your resurrection, Lord, you have made for us a way to belong to you, a way to be forgiven, a way to have life eternally, be delivered from all evil eternally, that we belong to your kingdom simply through what Jesus has done for us and our faith in that. We thank you, Lord, for that. And I just pray, Lord, as as we are your chosen exiles in this world, and that's not easy. We find ourselves in places where everyone else bows and it feels hard and we feel lonely, maybe standing. Lord, I just pray that you would give each and every one of us the resolve to stand firm for you wherever we are in our schools, in our workplaces, amongst our friends, in our communities, Lord, that we would stand for you, Lord, and in standing for you, that you might use us to bring others to yourself, that they may be part of your wonderful kingdom as well. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.